Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. Today's topic is the documentary The Imposter, a tale that gives new meaning to the old saying that truth is stranger than fiction. A little later in the podcast, I'll be talking with one of the film cinematographers, Eric Wilson, but first I'm joined in the studio by director Bart Layton. Bart is an acclaimed documentarian who has worked extensively in both film and television in Britain and the United States. In The Imposter, he uses a combination of interviews, archival footage, and dramatic reenactments to tell a riveting story that raises fascinating questions about the complex nature of truth, memory, and perception. Uh, Bart, I was wondering if you could start by just giving listeners an idea of what and who The Imposter is actually about. Uh, sure. Uh, it's hard to uh, get too far into the detail of the story without giving a lot of it away. But yeah, but as the title suggests, um, it really focuses on uh, the story of a, uh, a French man who in 1998 was able to uh, steal the identity of a missing child. The child had been missing uh, from Texas for about four years. And he was able to convince not only the American authorities, the State Department, uh, the FBI, but also the missing child's family that he was their their lost son. So when we came across the story, I think immediately I sort of felt like... I mean, I think if someone told you the the plot to this true story as uh, as the plot to a kind of work of fiction, it would, it would seem far-fetched. And I think because, you know, the story sort of occupies this unusual space which is somewhere between you know movie world and and reality uh, I think I felt that it presented an opportunity for a, a rather different kind of documentary you know as you say you know the story is stranger than fiction I suppose and so it felt like you know it needed a, a treatment that was perhaps stranger than documentary. Well when you first decided to make a film about the subject I mean what was your first step like who did you contact first and how did you get how did you get the the participants to actually uh, agree to be involved in this well uh, initially I read about him before I read about uh, this particular instant which is the focus of the film and I'd I'd read uh, an article in a Spanish magazine about this this man who had spent years traveling the length and breadth of Europe pretending to be uh, a damaged child and and it seemed that the purpose of that was for him to to gain access to children's centers orphanages um shelters uh for kids and he would stay for weeks and sometimes months and so i was i was kind of fascinated by that and then came across more uh information uh, a couple of other articles in which it set out this story where he'd stolen the identity of nicholas barclay and I was able to find him, he was back in France by this time, and I was able to find him, he had a, a YouTube account, YouTube page, he was kind of broadcasting, I think you can, I think he still does, you can probably still find it, and uh, and made contact with him through that, brought him to the UK, um, and that was really a starting point, I, I, at that point I wasn't sure what the story, what the film was going to be, whether it was going to be his story, or whether actually he was going to provide this kind of entry point to what was going to become a much more nuanced and a more uh, interesting film, which really is what it ended up being, you know, which is really about not just deception, but but self-deception as well. 
Yeah, well, one of the things that's great about the movie watching it as a viewer is that as you're watching all the different subjects, they each sound completely convincing and they all seem like they believe what they're saying and yet it's just completely contradictory information that keeps piling up. And, you know, at what point in the process did you realize you were kind of dealing with something where the truth was going to be up for grabs? And how did you, you know, find the right, the balance you needed to between clarity and ambiguity and all that? Yeah, it's a really good question. And actually, I think that's right at the heart of what the film's about, because I think, you know, there are lots of different ways in which you could make a film like this. And I think, you know, documentary traditionally, I suppose, is is uh, is about the sort of pursuit of an objective truth. I'm not sure that that's ever really um, achievable. You know, I, I, we could talk about that endlessly. But But I think what was more interesting to me about this was that in making the film... I sort of found myself in a kind of a detective story of my own, you know, that that um, in trying to understand how this extraordinary set of circumstances had come about, I would go from one interview one day and I would come away from that thinking, yeah, okay, I, I kind of get it. And then the next day would go to an interview with the special agent uh, who was in charge of the investigation with the FBI, for example, and I would come away with the exact opposite conclusion. So that felt to me like, a really sort of interesting thing that needed to be represented or recreated for the audience so that rather than us trying to choose a path through this and sort of create a kind of thesis film in which you're basically choosing um, the parts of the interviews which back up whatever judgment it is that you start to make at the beginning, I think that felt like a not the film that I wanted to make in a problematic way. Actually, what it becomes about is is actually the elusiveness of truth. You've got four or five competing versions of events and part of what is so unusual, I think, is that this film tries to take you, the audience, on a similar sort of detective journey to the one that I went on in making the film. So you, it is full of twists and turns that you can never see coming. And uh, and also that leads it, led me to, to feel that the structure of the film could be more akin to that of a thriller than, than of a conventional documentary. So the idea really for me was to start all of the characters' journeys at the moment in which they are brought into the film. So when the phone rings in Texas and the family receive word that their long-lost son has been found thousands of miles away on the other side of the world, that's when their story starts and, and we follow that. And when the FBI agent receives a, a phone call saying, you know, this kid is back and it claims to have been abducted by military and all sorts of things that's when her story starts and so really the job my job was to 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 find a way of interweaving all of those subjective stories sort of simultaneously so you're you feel like you're on a, a roller coaster and all of them overlap occasionally they disagree you know I guess it's up to you to figure out where the truth lies right um I want to talk a little bit more about the structure of the movie but first I actually wanted to ask about the interviews because it's very interesting the way you shoot the interviews because you, you make some sort of subtle uh, decisions about framing and the position of the interviewees in terms of uh, their eyelines and things like that. And, uh, you know, different characters are shown at slightly different character or different distances from the camera. And I was wondering if you could talk about those decisions and what your thinking was there. I shot the interviews with a DOP who I've worked with for many years called Linda Hall. And really what what she, I think one of the real gifts she has, I mean, she, she operates like a photographer, almost like a stills photographer in, in some ways. And 
has a really extraordinary eye for sort of portraiture and um, and and place. And it was very important that with most of the characters, um, other than the imposter himself, uh, I mean characters. When I say characters, I mean interviewees. Really, that we shot them in their environment. You know, in their in their home where where possible. Unfortunately, that was possible in in most of the cases. And really, you know, I wanted for the audience to have an understanding of them and their their sort of place in the world before they even started speaking, really, so that you understand they come from Texas and you've got this incredibly rich um, sort of the, these walls. That, you know, a couple of them were shot in uh, trailers which have that kind of uh, veneered wood and all of that. And, and there's lots of trinkets and there's lots of detail and there's lots of texture. You know, they have lots of different things in their homes which come from different times you know there's there's a flat screen tv but next to that is a an old um, blanket or a rosary hanging from the blind or something and all of that felt very much sort of critical to their character in a way and I suppose you know Linda has a tremendous eye for that and so that was something that we wanted we wanted you know so there's a lot of the interviews are much wider framing than you might be used to partly because we always wanted it to it was always going to be a piece of cinema rather than a something for television and it's shot 235 and that was something you know wanted to make use of that space put information into the background that were clues to these people's lives and also you know of course often you know when you're shooting documentary you, you use a zoom lens so you have quite a lot of flexibility over you know when things become more emotional there's a natural instinct to you know creep closer and the framing becomes tighter now if you're using prime lenses clearly that's that's not really the point so so I think I, I had broken down the sections of the story and felt like as it got more and more intense obviously we would you know the lenses would would reflect that with him it was slightly different with him you know when you when you meet with him he is a complex character you know and, and you're aware that this is a guy who is a a uh, convicted liar and a con man and a master storyteller and manipulator. And that was also something I felt was very important for the audience to have a direct experience of. So, you know, I wanted him to look down the lens. And that's quite, you know, and so, so we, we created a kind of our own version of the Interatron, which is, you know, Errol Morris's sort of auto-cue device. And what we created, and I say we really, it's... Um, the credit is all down to um, uh, Oliver Schofield, who was the, the DP who shot the master interview with Frederick. And uh, that was done in the studio. And what he created was a, was basically put the camera behind a, a piece of glass at a 45 degree angle. So so really, so Frederick and I sat fa not facing each other. We sat at 90 degrees from one another with the piece of glass at a 45 degree angle in front of the camera. Um, directly facing Frederick, so that actually he and I had a perfect eye line, and then the camera, poor Ollie, was sat under a massive black drape to so that Frederick wouldn't see the camera behind the glass. Obviously, uh, I don't know whether that makes sense. Yeah, and um, and so so he and I were able to maintain eye contact, look each other in the eye, but actually he was looking dir directly down the lens. That wasn't something I could do with the other interviewees because. I think it would have been intimidating and difficult to take all of that. You know, it's a lot of kind of clobber to take into someone's small 
um, home. I would have liked, I think, all of them to look down the lens ultimately, but but it felt particularly important with him because really what the whole thing is about is about allowing him to tell his side of the story and and possibly um, manipulate me, the interviewer, and you, the audience, in the way that he does with everyone he comes into contact with. So, so really that comes back to this idea of trying to put the audience right in the um in a position of kind of being on the receiving end you know inside the story rather than you know looking at it from a distance you know at a bunch of characters you can't really relate to it's really important to me that like you say at the beginning like you said that you you do listen to them and even though what they're telling you is extraordinary it's all completely believable well, and another thing you do that pulls the viewer into the kind of subjective experience of these people and their memories is incorporating dramatic material without dialogue, where you're you're sort of you're sort of visually giving a corollary for what's being talked about. And I was wondering when and how you decided on taking that kind of approach. And um, you know, it's it's, it's interesting because you're basically doing two completely different kinds of directing here. You know, there's the interview footage where you're trying to collect information and find what the story is, and then there's the dramatic material where you're kind of creating the drama toward a predetermined end. And I, I was wondering if you could talk about that aspect of the film. Yeah, <clears throat> it's a really, that's a really interesting question, not one that I've been asked before. Um, it is a totally different kind of um, director. You know, obviously you're working with actors and quite big setups. I mean, I certainly felt like I wanted the, the drama elements uh, or the you know the visualizations in the film to feel nothing like any documentary you'd ever seen before you know that quite gratifyingly people who've written about it say you know it, it feels like a hollywood you know kind of blockbuster at times in that you know we had rain machines and we had you know quite you know big jibs and all sorts of um things that you wouldn't expect to see on a documentary set i suppose and i think i felt that you know, probably reenactment is not the right word and neither is reconstruction because I think that would imply that you are recreating something kind of almost forensically that, that you know happened. Whereas what this was about was really trying to visualise the stories that you're being told. So, you know, all of these people are, are very strong storytellers and you, if someone tells you a great story, you have quite a visual experience. You know, this this movie kind of plays in your mind and... That was what I wanted to try and recreate, you know, and also make people aware of the fact that that they're subjective visualizations, you know. That so, for example, one of the things that uh, we did a lot was when when you go into these drama sequences, you sort of go in either using a POV shot or an over the shoulder or or a POV shot that turns into an over the shoulder shot, and it's kind of like a. My thinking there was it was kind of like a shorthand for telling you, this is whose story you're in this is who's telling you this side of the story and this is whose memory you're sort of inhabiting. And there are lots of sort of little devices where, for example, the actors lip sync some of the words of the interview. And again, you know, part of the idea behind that was to try and remind you that you are in their story rather than uh, a piece of reality. And I think that's where drama in documentaries is, is, is dangerous, is where you're trying to tell the audience it's something it's not. You know, you're trying to persuade them that it's a piece of archive or something that that clearly it can't be. Yeah. The um, so the, the dramatic material in the film was uh, shot by Eric Wilson, who I'm going to be talking with next. Uh, I was wondering, how did you first become aware of him, and what led you to use him for those the sequences? Uh, Eric was someone that 
has been doing some really interesting work with uh, Film 4, who are one of the um, financiers of the of the film. He shot Submarine, which I don't know if you've seen, is a really has a, a really unusual quality, which is somewhere in between a kind of a, a sort of documentary movement and with this kind of dreamlike quality to it and 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 also the super eight there's all of these amazing textures so it feels like again this kind of heightened reality which it was exactly where i wanted to go uh he um shot um tyrannosaur so he, he was someone that was uh kind of on the radar as, as starting to do very kind of interesting work in in um you know, bringing his amazing eye to um, imagery, which is quite, uh, I think, you know, for example, Tyrannosaur is, you know, it's a, a very um, uh, visceral film, but at the same time, you know, Eric was able to incorporate, you know, some really beautiful imagery as well. Um, and so that was, so, so I met with him and then, you know, even before he showed me a lot of the stuff he shot, he was one of the kind of most delightful human beings I'd ever come across you know and when I showed him the documentary cut of the film that was before you know that was just the structure of the story he kind of said well look you've already got an amazing film what we're going to do can only you know enhance it in a way and and I think he understood this idea I had about creating visual that was going to be very painterly quite heavily stylized that was going to have this kind of film noir like quality to it at times and I think I was more I was more sold on his uh just his kind of attitude to life and and the film and just what a delightful guy he was before it was a sort of bonus that he turned out to be such an extraordinary talent the interview footage in the imposter was shot by cinematographers Linda Hall and Oliver Schofield while the dramatic material was photographed by my next guest Eric Wilson as Bart said, Eric's other credits include Submarine and the award-winning film Tyrannosaur, as well as numerous other television programs and music videos. I spoke with him by phone from London, where he's currently shooting a new project. Okay, well, uh, you know, Eric, before we delve into The Imposter, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your, your background as a cinematographer. What was the path you took to becoming a director of photography? Uh, I, went to, uh, I went to film school in London, um, and just to want to study film, and then that's where sort of camera seemed to be the the way to go. It kind of uh, yeah, because I'm I'm from Norway originally, but we didn't have a film school when I wanted to go. And then uh, yeah, it was either Denmark or or London that seemed like the places to go. And and that was sort of that was sort of it really. It wasn't really who were and are some of your influences. I think from yeah from uh, Roger Deakins has always been the main one. Amanda is brilliant, um, of course. And now there's some, you know, some of the, some of the newer uh, or the, the younger ones that I really like. There's Annie Cohen, mm-hmm. who does great work. And um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's there's lots. Well, let's talk. Uh, getting to the imposter, you know, dramatic reenactments in documentaries, uh, they can sometimes be a bit of a cliche. But you came up with some really haunting and unusual imagery in this film. I'm curious what your initial conversations were with Bart Layton in terms of figuring out how you guys would approach the material and, and avoid the obvious. Yeah, I think the what seemed to to me that he wanted was well, he was very clear from the beginning that he wanted something movie. He didn't want quick TV. I don't know. He wanted to approach everything 
from that each shot was the most important thing we were doing. It was not just, oh yeah, okay, let's just cover a lot of bits and bobs and try to get it, try to have lots of material to cut together. He just wanted each little piece to 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 be its own, to hold its own. So if we only need that that one shot from one location, we would actually plan for just doing that one shot. And uh, and I think the greatest advantage we had was that they'd cut they'd cut the whole film together from the interviews uh-huh. and left black spacing where you know they imagined that the reenactment uh, part would go. So we would actually go out and say, okay, we only need about four seconds, which we could do two shots, so we can just do one shot that lasts four seconds, and that's all we need from this one spot. So which allowed us to, you know, it was great freedom so that we, we didn't need to cover whole scenes. We didn't need to shoot it like a drama. Right. We, we would literally just do what was needed and if we have, you know, a spare time, then we'll, we'll do more. But but um, that I think allowed to to focus intently on each on each setup. So you were were you able to actually see all the interview footage yourself before you you embarked on your part of the film? Yeah, which was wonderful. And also the 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 greatest thing about it was the pressure was so I didn't feel any pressure because the film was great with no no reenactment whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So if if I managed to you know if we shot and and that we lost the drives with all the footage it would still be a great film. <laughs> um, so there, there was there was there was no pressure. It was it was only it was only fun and it was only playing and that was yeah I <clears throat> I don't know I I like that freedom I think that's normally is what I don't know sometimes that can give you you know you can, you can try things you wouldn't have tried normally. Well, it's interesting because the movie's almost like a cross between documentary and film noir, and I was curious if there were any other films that you were able to use as touchstones in terms of figuring out the visual style. Yeah, we we looked at a couple of things, but it was it wasn't many. I can't remember any specific bits. There's a couple of bits we stole, like when he sleeps and you see the the, the sort of the story unfold uh, next to him. Yeah, we try to look at, or we try to imagine what what Frederick would have imagined this to look like. Right. That's sort of how we approached it. Like, he imagined himself like a detective. And we imagined that, okay, what would he want us to believe that to look like? What kind of film would that be like? Okay, so it would be, he would look cool and it would be backlit, it would be silhouette, it would be, you know, so it kind of, that's more what informed us, and then we, you know, we each have our own arsenal of, of references. But, but nothing. I can't remember anything in particular we we looked at. It was more the types of colours. There was a commercial for Mazda, I think. No, for for Mercedes. That was an inspiration for the beginning in the in the town square, which which was beautiful, and and some other um, more just some stills. Well, it's interesting because those sequences are very dreamlike and in some ways actually quite unrealistic, which would seem to be the opposite approach one would usually find in a documentary. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the things you did in terms of color and, and composition to sort of create that artificial quality? I think the, the main thing is that we shot at 235. I think they shot the interviews in 185 or 69. Right. And then... And then 
but was playing around and okay, wow, maybe we make it more more cinema like if we do two three five. And so he showed me the cut in two three five. And I just thought that that's the way this they've done the whole thing. And he was like, No, no, I just put it on and just to see what it feels like. And I was like, absolutely wonderful. It really makes you know, it makes it more of a cinema movie cinema film than than a documentary. And so that's 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 the obvious thing that takes it away from T V. Um, and then also in terms of colours, it was more trying to um, because it's, I mean, it's still a you know it's still a documentary. It wasn't it wasn't the biggest shoot in the world. We still had to just um, rely on killing light rather than adding much of our own. And that was the thing we looked at for in locations where we could we we could control the lighting in the way that we could kill we could kill bits and bobs and just leave what we wanted. And 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 also that's what I trumped through trying to or. What one to shoot on the Alexa? They shot the red, the rest of the red, and some Sony 900. And I want to use the Alexa because it's so light sensitive, so we can actually kill lights rather than adding lights. Right. And that was one of the main things I think that I want to do. Yeah. So, so we could have some control, but with not a big crew. Mm-hmm. Well, how big? How big was your crew and lighting package and all that? Uh, I think for for most of it, it was uh, we had a we had a. We had a camera system in each in Spain and in the States, uh, and um, you know a, a DIT, and then a couple of days we would have uh, a few more people, a few sparks, um, and and some lights. One day we had a little a little kind of crane arm, and rain machines, and you know in the town square, that was the uh, with the phone box. That was the that was the place where we had the most. Uh, kind of crew and things, but we we weren't that many. I don't know. I didn't feel like we were many people. It was only the the bare basics. So you 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 adopted sort of a less is more approach in terms of the lighting. How about your approach to to camera movement? What were the rules or guidelines you set for yourself there? <laughs> Again, very very much the same thing. What 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 we used the most was uh, you get a. a you put the, the tripod on a rolling spreader, rolling spider, like you would use in a, in a, like a TV studio almost. And then you have a vibration isolator. And then I would just roll the camera around and operate. Like that. Mm-hmm. So there's no, no dolly. You would, we would just use the, the tripod with wheels on and wheel it around mm-hmm. and use that. So and then lots and lots of handheld. Right. Well, you said you were, you know, sort of liberated by the material that had been shot um, by the other cinematographers before you came on. Yeah. Uh, and but I'm curious if what they did, if the interview footage and all that, did it at all influence what you did? I mean, were you um, was the way you shot your material affected by that? Were you trying to match it? Were you trying to be different from it? What was your feeling about all that? I, I was I was because there was only one other cinematographer, Linda Hall, who did all the interviews and the parts with the real people. As in, there's a part. Did you see the film at all? Yeah. Um, with with uh, Charlie Parker when he goes to dig in the garden at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, she shot all of that. Um, and then, yeah. So what I was inspired by that was was how on. TV, it was. As in, 
yeah, it felt it, a lot of care had gone into it, and it felt like I don't know. It felt stylish is not a good word, but it felt like it had a. It wasn't. Uh, it's yeah, how do you define that? I don't know. It wasn't scared. It wasn't. I don't know. I just liked it. Yeah. <laughs> it was visually strong. It was. I don't know how you say these things, but yeah. Um, it was good. I liked it a lot. And um, once you got to to post, did you do anything uh, special in terms of manipulating what you had shot, or was it pretty straightforward? Pretty straightforward workflow in in terms of the post production. I think um, what, what, one of the one of the not, not bad, but one of the one of the we we wondered how all the footage would go together because we right. read we had the Sony nine hundred with a lens adapter, we had the five D and an Alexa all together. And it was, it was quite an interesting test in terms of format uh, because all of them, all the formats are capable of, of delivering really good images. But for me, it seemed like the only camera that held up in all situations was, were the Alexa. Mm -hmm. Where the others had parts where you go, okay, mm, okay, not really, not really. But in, for most of it, you'd be hard-pressed to see which camera was, was used for what. Right, I think so. That was that was quite, you know, that was fascinating. But then, yeah, it was all done through uh, the the grade was all at, at Company Three in London with Rob Pitty. Were there any issues, any problems, or anything that arose from trying to mix the different formats, or did it all come out pretty smoothly? No, just I mean usual conform things. But no, I don't. I don't think there were any. No, not like not. Us, but technically, no. I mean, there were a couple of a couple of things that were where the back focus, I think, was out a bit on the on the um, uh, the lens adapter for the nine hundred. But I don't know. It's, I, don't know I don't think it's even worth mentioning. It, Got it. Maybe someone else who was actually there all the time could tell you. But no, it seemed to be fine. Mm -hmm. Well, I assume I'm assuming that it was pretty much decided all the way along that this was going to be digital. I mean, was there ever any talk at all about shooting shooting it on film or anything like that? Uh, yeah, we spoke about we spoke um, uh, actually both Bart Bart and I wanted to to do all the reenactment on on sixteen. Uh -huh. And why uh, didn't we you were, do that? Uh, we were quite quickly. Yeah, we didn't have that much money. Uh huh. And stock. And processing and getting things back and forth would have been maybe a bit complicated. Right. And yeah, and then there were quite a few things, and we could shoot. I think yeah, just the fact that we could actually shoot more. Right. Uh, yeah, I think it was still yeah, it still would have been lovely, but I don't think in the end, I don't think it was a bad a bad idea to to go Alexa. Well, I think that's all uh, all for me, Eric. So thanks so much for, for talking with me about the film. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers 
a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography. 